Here we are. At the ending of our third full day of practice. So many, for many of us, compelling experiences that can seem so uh, overwhelming or seductive, enchanting, terrifying. It can seem so solid. And yet how many myriads of perceptions, thoughts, experiences in just these three days and nights have arisen and dissolved. We can remember perhaps feeling discouraged, overwhelmed, Averse. I hate meditation. We're inspired to dedicate our lives. Wow, what the heck? My future lives. Countless future lives. For the welfare of all beings. That I too could live in a way that's a blessing. It's a roller coaster. But the framework, the word contemplate, has temple in it. It has a secret meaning. In the old days, so I've heard, there was a template that was actually marked in the ground with a boundary, sacred boundary, and that the spiritual seeker would consciously you know, with an intention to more deeply understand life, deeply enter the temple, the sacred ground. Not that there was necessarily anything sacred about it, but the old understanding was that in committing yourself to that template, staying with it, the excitement, (laughs) I'm on the path, with all the other countless men and women over the ages, yogis, going into the truth. And then as we stay within the boundary and it gets to the midday sun or the midday freeze, start to get bored and restless. But if one can stay with it, one has the opportunity to notice the compelling, how it is, keep shifting and changing. The word religion also had used to have that same essential meaning in it. Religare meant to bind yourself, to bind yourself to some practice, some structure. It was meant to be a binding that, like that template, could, in the process of staying with, for example, Sitting period, just a template, structure. It's not necessarily sacred, but in staying with that, that's an example of a religious or a spiritual practice, we can notice restlessness well up and subside. It can seem so like me. Gosh, I can't take another minute. I don't like, I hate meditation. It's just not for me, okay? But, oh God, 15 more minutes, okay. And it, we can have the experience of it welling up and then also subsiding, and then we think, oh, well, it was me. Have the opportunity, the, it seemed like our heart, our essence, it seemed like me, and yet it was, we realized it was through 
skillful use of the religary, binding yourself to that practice, have an opportunity to get that impulse in perspective. It's not me. It, yes, it's me, but it's, it's something I can choose to be with or to follow or not. See it come and go. Yoga, same meaning. Yoke. Yoga means to yoke. Yoking yourself to different asanas, practices, meditations. All these commitments to structures were meant to then liberate one. One's using them skillfully from confusions. What I so appreciate about the the Buddhist teachings is he was very clear about all the stuff that he taught were just structures. He said they're a raft. You can use if you're on a dangerous side of the river and it's a bit treacherous there, but you want to go to the farther shore where it's safe. You, 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 you get some twigs and work with what's available. And you use that raft with effort to cross over you don't have to carry it on your head around everywhere. You can use it, put it down for others. Use it, put it down. He was very clear about these are just tools, structures that one can bind oneself consciously to just as a tool, as a mirror to see oneself, to to see one's attachments, one's assumptions. But that essential meaning of the temple of, of religious structure, it's so easily, it's the bane of religion. It gets forgotten. And then, the, and then the structure becomes the main thing. You worship the structure. It's like bowing to the map. Maps are useful. And it's nice to honor the map. But, you know, do we ever also use the map to to walk to the destination. In this, in this way, this, this journey we're talking about is a journey in to the, to the center that doesn't exclude what's around the center, but welcomes, illumines, comprehends. So on, on this retreat, we're, just, we're offering some of these structures that have been helpful to us, but they're just that. They're tools that one can use, not use. And hopefully, when we use a tool or don't use a tool, we're, we're, we're using it as an opportunity to see ourselves, to see what we take to be ourselves, what we take to be real. When I went off to Thailand to, to become a monk, the Buddha didn't mean much to me. I probably barely knew that it had an H in it. You know, it uh, but I had, uh, you know, done a 10-day meditation retreat and another half 10-day meditation retreat. A whole retreat and a half. And I had, uh, and it was hell, similar to Nisra's, the first few days. Just the mind was crazy. But I had a, a taste, somewhere in the middle of the retreat, just a taste of tranquility. And it was so amazing to me because it wasn't drug-induced. And I, I was someone who I'd been so conditioned, you know, I got high on working for the exam, working for the tournament. I used to be a championship wrestler, you know, and so the high was winning and the fear of losing and doing good on the exam. And, you know, so these big moments were where I was aiming for, being terrified of them, aiming for them, enduring, working hard, getting there. And this imagination that I could somehow get to success and peace or stability, or a good place. 
And by the time I was 24, after, even though in the scrapbooks I was five-time Mid-South Wrestling Champion and, and National Invitational Prep School Champion and this and that uh, academic award, I was so exhausted. I was 24 and felt 104. I was trying to win, win. And I, I, I did a meditation retreat in Oxford when I was trying to, I was writing a thesis on art, science, and mysticism in the works of Aldous Huxley. So I was kind of comprehending the universe. <laughs> and uh, just feeling so tired and feel like I had to get there. And um, did this retreat and uh, similar to, to Nisra, the, the, the monk that was teaching it couldn't speak much English, hardly any, but he could say, observe. <laughs> observe the breath. That was about it. So mine was crazy, but in just, you know, just coming back, coming back, coming back, I did have a moment, a period of time, just staying with the body, having that gathering of energy. And the nervous system, just by bearing with all the crazy stuff, nervous nervous system smoothing out. And I found myself, you know, just even in between the meditation, standing outside in front of a bush, you know, and, and to me, you know, in, in those days, you know, I, that would not be a kind of exciting moment because I wasn't a big horticultural expert or anything like that. I would, would be in between the important stuff. But I was just peaceful to look at the leaves, the dewdrops, to feel the humming of the body, humming of the silence. And what I would have ordinarily thought was just nothing was, was, was delicious. It's something, wow. So I, I wanted, I, I knew, I, I sensed I was so externally focused on thinking happiness was getting to the top. Some part of me, though, I'm not sure I could articulate it at the type of time, was so weary and I realized, hey, hey, I've forgotten something. That, that there's something back here, just within this ordinariness that's important. Quite soon after the retreat, I, I, you know, as soon as I started talking, looking, hearing, I got depressed. What? And that feeling disappeared. I wanted more of it. So you know, I heard about this uh, monk in Thailand, Ajahn Chah, and had a few Westerners uh, with him. And I, I really wanted more of this tranquility. And I'm, a, I'm an obsessive type, so I, I, I figured that, you know, if you just get enough tranquility, then enlightenment must be you just break through that thing. <laughs> and then there you are. And I figured, well, okay, 10 days, 10 and a half, retreat and a half, 10 days if I got a little bit of tranquility, let's see. Well, there's 52 weeks in a year. You know, I should be able to crack this thing in a year, maybe two max. (laughs) And then, you know, go off, blow the lid off, and then go back and live happily ever after be a doctor, that's what I was going to be, go back. And then um, when I met Ajahn Chah, and he, he asked me about my, my meditation, I was introduced to him, uh, I was fairly confident, because I had done a 10-day retreat. <laughs> and a half. <laughs> half a 10-day retreat. Um, and so I was, he asked me if I knew how to meditate. Yeah, 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 I know how to meditate. So I was saying something about the meditation. 
And he, um, what I really wanted him to do, because I, I had the trust that, you know, you could have a little help if a great master just sort of tapped you. What I really want him to do is say, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> You've arrived. And to tap me, you know, I'd go unconscious for a little while, I'd come back crying, of course, but tears of joy and relief, and that then I would be changed. And uh, all my self-destructive stuff and all my self-hatred stuff and all my restlessness and competitiveness and comparing would just disappear. Anyway, I told him about, and I was skilled at meditation because I'd done a 10-day retreat, and, but he didn't tap me. And he got off, I was sitting on the floor with the other people. He was in his wicker chair. He got off his wicker chair down on the floor on all fours and started sniffing around like a dog. <laughs> like this and saying some things in Thai, which I didn't understand. Everybody's laughing. He's sniffing around and I'm waiting for a translation. But my legendary Piscean intuition could tell that he wasn't impressed with my meditation. <laughs> Anyway, he's sniffing around. And I was wanting Doug to give me a translation. And finally, uh, Ajahn Chah smiled. And he had a lovely smile. And he just says, you know, you don't need to sniff all over the place. And he, and he, he pointed to his nose. You know. He says, be with your breathing. He says, if you get to know one thing well, you'll understand everything. You know, one thing well, you understand everything. You know, I've been writing this thesis on the whole world, the cosmos. I didn't really know what he meant, but there was something in the way Ajahn Chah would make, would make fun that was really endearing. Yes, it made fun, but it, it's touched my heart, stabbed my heart. I, I felt blessed. And he said, why don't you learn how to be a monk? He said, go be with Sumato. Let him teach you how to be a monk. That was a senior Western disciple he had. I still didn't really get what he was on about, but later it came back. I still was very attached to my tranquility. So I, I went and learning how to be a monk and meditating. And, but, you know, meditating in Thailand in those days, you know, none of these big cushions stacked and all this stuff. You had one thin layer of cotton. If you had even two layers of cotton, you'd be looked at askance. Who, what are you trying to do? And cushions. Nobody had cushions. So you're sitting there on this one, like my shirt, layer of cotton. Everything goes dead. And you might get a moment of, of peace and then, you know, the mosquitoes start swarming in. And then they seem to like my blood, and why don't they bite so and so? And you can't, if you start using insect repellent, then everybody else gets bit. <laughs> and then I start feeling guilty. And so, but you know, I'm changing posture because legs going to sleep all the time. <sighs> changing my fanning, you know, because, you know, fanning, and you know, so where's my tranquility? And, uh, you know, and occasionally if I'd be back in my mosquito net and nobody was, you know, wasn't out in the public where you could use cushions and things. And in Thailand, cushions are for your head and to be sitting on a cushion is like an insult in the Thai culture. It's like, at that time, they might have moved on from that. <laughs> so I'd get some peace and then, and then uh, get... Uh, uh, frustrated when it wouldn't last because I wanted tranquility I wanted it to and at some point maybe I, I little by little started to to listen or remember what Ajahn Chah taught you get to know one thing well you understand everything this is what we've been been doing we've been yes stabilizing ourselves some tranquility is really useful doesn't harm anyone. A pleasing abiding here and now to some degree is skillful. Allows us to be at ease whether we're standing or walking. 
or sitting or lying down. But if we want that quality of feeling always to be there, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. If as we're being with the breathing, say we're being with this sensation somewhere, say at the nostrils, and we observe or notice there's a, a welling up, an expansion, the in-breath. Then that ceases. And it turns into the out-breath. The out-breath shifting, changing, vibrating. And it turns into the in-breath. Maybe we prefer, do, do we prefer, oh no, the in-breath. That's, that's fresh. It's inspiring. It's, it's energizing. But you know, do we only breathe in? Yeah, yeah that's the best. Yeah. Can we just only breathe in? No, no, no. The out-breath, out-breath is about relaxing. It's about letting go. It's about surrendering. Understand one thing, you understand everything. It arises and ceases. It arises and ceases. Something Ajahn Chah used to say all the time. If you look for certainty in that which is uncertain, you're bound to suffer. If you look for certainty, stability, security, in that which is by nature uncertain, unstable, you're bound to suffer. You generate suffering. We generate suffering. And yet when we don't contemplate, when we just believe our conditioning, like my conditioning, for example, was, well, when, 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 if I get to success, then I'll, 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 I'll get there. Yet even success, when I won that national tournament and raised my hand up and I'd been working so hard doing 500 push-ups a day and climbing ropes and running and raising my hand up and yes. But you know, how long does this stay up there? <laughs> if you've got a mom like mine, it's in the scrapbook. You can open the scrapbook. Yes, I'm a champion. But you know, Literally, minutes later, minutes later, I was scanning who's coming back next year. I have to defend my title. Who will I have to wrestle next year? You can remember that, but you know, success. What's success? Failure. Praise. It's lovely to be praised. Kitty Sorrow, you are a... I can't put words to it. You're a great... Great. What does great mean? <laughs> great teacher. Oh, God. Ah, it's nothing really. <laughs> and then someone else goes, God, it's just a bunch of rubbish. You just, words coming out of your mouth like, it's a con job. <laughs> and then, you know, and you know, and, it's, and, and sometimes you can feel suicidal after a Dhamma talk. Okay? <laughs> And you praise and blame. <laughs> praise and blame. No, 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 no. Wouldn't it be nice if, 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 if we always got praised? And move? It's like the child looking up. Oh, Mom, wouldn't it be nice if the moon was always full? Can I have it? That's beautiful. It's like wanting the in-breath. Yet we, we, we don't contemplate. We don't. It's obvious, but we don't. Or being pleased. Pleasure. My tranquility, that pleasing feeling, yes. And when we take something and make an assumption about it, it's me, it's mine, this success, this pleasure, this mood. When we lean on it, 
That's called birth in Buddhist teachings. Birth. Because we're supporting ourselves. We're establishing the sense of who we are on that feeling. Ooh, it's smooth. I got here. Yeah. And someone even raises their eyebrow, you know, the wrong way, and you start thinking, oh, did I do something? Did I forget to <laughs> dress properly? And you start worrying. And then, and then one loses one's balance. You look for certainty, and yet when we take something to be me, like my strong wrestling body, And when I got typhoid, and for years, for like a decade, I was a basket case. I couldn't even get off the floor. So weak. We call it my body. We call it my mood, my happiness. When we don't really contemplate it, when there's, there's praise or pleasure or success, Take birth, lean on it. Then when it changes, if you're sitting on something and it collapses, we, we feel dislocated. If you lean on something and it moves. Then when, when we lose our balance, it's called death. Then we seek it again. I think, oh, I just got to go harder to get that tranquility back. And lose it. Once a week, we would do an all-night sitting. And the, you know, when I have images of, no, if I just get there, then I can sit through the night and break through. You know, it starts at 7 o'clock in a Dhamma talk. A bit, as you know, Dhamma talks go on. <laughs> get through the Dhamma talks, so I think you can really get down to the meditation. And, you know... And, okay, so the leg went numb. What the heck? I'll shift posture this time, but once I get going, then I'll just go through. And then, and then you know, then it's 7.27. You know? <laughs> uh, oh, God. A little walking meditation, get the energy going. Then, you know, 8.12. <laughs> oh, God. And then, you know, then it, then, then it, you know, then at some point you find yourself nodding and then a monk's in front of you saying, I have this memory of a Thai monk saying, Samadhi Dimai, which in Thai means, is your Samadhi good? And I had been, <laughs> I'd been nodding off and this, this rage came up. Oh, I bet you're nodding. <laughs> but, you know, you're not supposed to hit anybody. So I had to, Okay, okay, okay. I bet I catch him nodding. Oh, God. And then, you know, by, by around, you know, 10, 15, it's just, it's just, you know, and you're looking up the line and everybody's nodding. You're looking down the line and you're awake for a few minutes, then it's you. And, and, and then, you know, you've got other issues because there's people, the lay people, the village farmers are there meditating and you're in your robe, getting used to wearing a robe, and if you nod off and fall backwards, you expose yourself. <laughs> And you're sitting up on a platform. So if you go forward and you got a nose like this and you fall down, you could kill yourself. <laughs> I mean, imagine pushing this nose up into the brain. <laughs> I was really terrified. And, and then, oh my goodness. And then, you know, around you know, 11, 12, oh God, it's just, it's, you know, it's just... But then, Practicing patience and just being with restlessness and I can't stand it and and in staying with, staying with, staying with, staying with, seeing the things change. I had this bizarre experience that by four o'clock in the morning, though, you know, I, I, I would have just given up. And yet it was like in school, when I used to go to school in elementary school, school, you'd have the board, chalkboards, it'd be dusty, and then overnight they would get cleaned mysteriously, and they'd be nice and clean, no dust on them in the morning. 
it was like that by the end of the night because you just you're you're given up on trying to get into any great state. You're just being with what is. It comes and goes. It comes and goes. And there was a purity of just being that I that that was that was lovely. And little by little, I started, you know, contemplating that. What do you learn from the breath? What comes, goes. And it's not only true for the breath. It's true for the the body, our strength. External bodies and forms, the light and the dark. The cold and then the thawing. The brightness and the stormy. It's the level of forms. Yet when we really expect forms and we own them, okay, we can call it my things, my body, but is it really? So when we look for certainty there, where if we look for certainty in that which is by nature, what the Buddha called ahnicca, it is uncertain, it's impermanent. That's the nature of form. The nature of feeling. Feeling meaning some moments are pleasing, some moments are neutral, some moments are displeasing. On our body, you know, my, my, my left cheek is fairly neutral right now. It's, it's all right. Uh, left hip, you know, slight pain. The, the tingling of, of, of the whole sense of the, the subtle energy field of the body is pleasing right now. Every sight can be a little pleasing. Some are displeasing, some are more neutral. We notice that the feeling, being pleased or displeased or neutral, shifting all the time. Our perceptions the way we mark. I'm sitting. Monday night, Dharma tall. Kitty's on to this IMS retreat. How do we frame it? Oh God, three down and how many more to go? <laughs> oh God, I haven't had an insight yet. I haven't any. Come on, go for it. Come on. You get Notice how we frame it, but how notice how again ephemeral these these markers are, these perceptions, very ephemeral. Friend, enemy. It's good. It's bad. I I, I like it. I God, I can't take, take another moment. Look for certainty in that which is uncertain. In vipassana, as we, as we little by little cultivate some capacity, even a little bit of capacity to be present, then we begin to notice, bring in this direct, not, co- not conceptual, theoretical, but direct apprehension, witnessing of things becoming otherwise. Even something so simple as a, an in-breath, yeah, there it is, it's the in-breath, and then it's gone. Out-breath. And sound is very good for that, too. Sound is there, and then it's, it's gone. Perception, volition, moments of knowing a sight, a sound, a thought, all these, what the Buddha called, aspects of what we take to be me when we really look, perceive, we'll notice, wow, they're anicca, what the Buddha called anicca, not permanent, always becoming otherwise. And that, that insight, all the most profound teachings of Buddhism come out of that. All emptiness, not self, everything comes out of deeply knowing 
that what arises ceases. Because when we really come in contact with this moment of, you know, the actuality of the cascade of sounds, shifting of light, notice our attention's moving from here to there, and there's bits of our sensations of our body and thoughts. Our actual experience is just a cascade and flow of sensations and thoughts. And we're expecting that torrent of change where we're looking for stability in that. That's why when we really see change, we we realize what the Buddha called dukkha, or the unreliability. It's not a value judgment against things. But but if we're demanding a feeling to give us more than it can give us, it's, it's, its nature is dukkha. Dukkha means, it's translated as suffering, but more profoundly it means it's not stable. It's, it's not reliable, or you can rely on it to decay, to break up, to shift. And what is changing and dissolving we can call it mine, we can call it myself, but that's just a way of talking. It's not really mine. Yet when we grasp and, and try to keep hold of, lean on, we keep bumping in. Bumping into life, feeling the stress of looking for certainty where there's no certainty. At some point, there's a, there's a weariness. We realize we're looking in the wrong place. That, that weariness is not considered a bad thing. What the Buddha called nipita. It's, 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 a, it's a disenchantment that's, that's useful because we realize we're, we're, we're trying to squeeze more out of conditions than they can possibly offer us. So that it's the beginning of what's called the great reversal. We, 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 it's not that we're hating anything. We realize Ajahn Chah was very earthy. He said it's like, it's like going up to a duck and saying, why aren't you a chicken? Come on, you can do it. Cockle-doodle-doo. <laughs> it's not that hard. You could wake people up in the morning. You could be help for mindfulness. I mean, quack, quack, quack. Ajahn Chai is funny, but you know, he said, you know, you're wanting to make, make a duck into a chicken. Wanting conditions, wanting praise, wanting happiness, wanting pleasure, wanting strength, wanting it to be stable. It's like asking a chicken why it's not a duck or a duck why it's not a chicken. So there's a relinquishment that can be a letting be, an honoring. Ajahn Chah says when our teacher would say, if you let go a little, you'll experience a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll experience a lot of peace. When you let go completely, you can experience complete peace. This is not a denial, a rejection of conditions, but a compassionate relinquishment of assumptions that we're making that choke conditions, that choke each other when we think we own stuff. Yes, we need to look after things and do what we can to take care of ourselves and others as best we can, but it's holding lightly with that recognition That, that, that everything is, is fluid. It's, it's, it's challenging, very challenging, because of our habits. Sometimes we, we know we should let go and we can't. 
because we're wanting it to be different. I don't want this. I don't want it to be that way. And again, we should be patient with ourselves. And again, I'm quoting my teacher, who's very encouraging. He would say, no, no, give yourself credit. At least you're honest. You know you're clinging. Okay, you can't let go. But that's 70% of it. 70% is just the honesty of, you know, I'm suffering here. And it's called, the, as we'll be looking in the next few days, suffering is the first noble truth. It ennobles us. We don't need to hate our suffering. When we open to the suffering, that then allows the possibility of beginning to understand what's feeding this suffering, what's per- perpetuating the suffering, what's perpetuating the stress. It ennobles us because we then become more capable of bearing with life. And we were interested in looking. So we can't necessarily let go. But in being with where we're rejecting or clinging, stressed out, we have the opportunity to see. And if we can keep coming back to that simple teaching that, you know, Ajahn Ajahn Chah gave me that first day, If you can understand one thing, you can understand everything. If it's all overwhelming, can we notice a breath comes and goes? It rises and ceases. That's true of every condition, every sound, every thought. All the thoughts that trap us into thinking, I'm this way and you're that way. When we start start to also see a thought come and go. And to begin to notice the silence around the thoughts. The ground with each, which each thought, each perception, each experience dissolves back into. when we release and allow things to reveal their nature of coming and going, we can get a feeling for the peacefulness. The underlying peacefulness that is, but which we don't notice when we're so busy thinking it somewhere else. So we always, the Buddha always emphasized practicing with some understanding. He said if we, if we don't understand, if our practice isn't guided by some wisdom, we, he said it, it, it would be like someone who cooks sand really diligently, <laughs> but cooking sand wanting to get savory delicacies. They're cooking and cooking and cooking, oh, no, 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 cooking and cooking. But, you know, you just don't get savory delicacies out of sand. And it, when you don't understand, he said, this root of beginningless birth and death, it's like cooking sand hoping to get good food. And this root of all this suffering is, he said, the mind that takes conditions to be me my body, my happiness, my feeling. Then it eludes us, and then we grasp it again, and it eludes us, and we grasp it again. That's the root of birth and death, that that, that grasping tendency. When we then, this contemplation of change is the gateway back can begin with something so simple. Just being with a breath. As we start to see its ever-changing nature, we realize, of course, it's ungraspable. How can one grasp it? It's swelling and subsiding. Swelling and subsiding. So in that recognition, then I what the Buddha called viraga, a dispassion, a recognition where 
looking in the wrong place. We're trying to cook sand and get food. We're squeezing, squeezing, hoping tranquility will last forever, hoping praise will last forever, hoping success will last forever. And in that letting go, getting a feeling for the ground. what the Buddha called the original brightness, which is always here. We lose touch with it when we get mesmerized by what's moving through this, what you could call the heart, the ground. So I'd like to encourage and praise all of us for hanging in there as best we can. This is, I think, is very challenging. But when we don't do it, when we just unconsciously take things to be mine that aren't really mine and then get resentful when it doesn't go the way we want it to go and then blame, then we get some of the chaos that we have around us and within us. So uh, I encourage us to, to take heart, to stay with the process, and to uh, give ourselves credit for at least the honesty of knowing when we suffer, the honesty of just seeing things as they are, to give ourselves uh, credit for the nobility of learning to bear, to bear with pleasure and pain, light and dark, in-breath and out-breath. Even our insights we can let come and go, whereas grasping can bring stress, sharing can bring joy. So finishing this day, however we think it's been, uh, my sense is there's been lots of blessings generated here as we try at least to live harmlessly, mindfully, peacefully. At the ending of this day, can we dedicate with an intention that may the goodness of our work be shared above, 
below, all around. May it suffuse every cell in our body and emanate forward, back, left, right, up, down. May it just be a gentle wave of blessing, non-harming, sharing, extending an intention that may, may all beings benefit in some mysterious way by what we're doing. May all beings realize peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.